Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. And I'm Ben Kantak. I'm the producer of this podcast. And uh, Marnie and I thought to kick off this whole series, it would be a great idea to have the first episode about you. Me. Yeah, who started Ta-da! this whole idea, who came <laughs> up with it. And uh, to get to know you um, before you then start out um, interviewing all these amazing people and experts yeah. um, that have to do with light, night skies, light pollution and so forth. Um, Marnie, tell us a little bit about you. You you were born in the northern beaches of Sydney, and um, I was just fascinated from the get-go about your idea to do this podcast um, about you know, night skies, light pollution, and so forth, because it's a really interesting topic at the moment. It's really um, mm. something that is cooking right now and that is really happening, and a lot of people have Absolutely. lots of questions yeah. about it. Um, but start out with starting out with you, how did it all start? I mean, you, you grew up on the northern beaches. Mm. When did you decide to, you know, take an interest in the mm-hmm. night skies, astronomy and so forth. Sure. Well, I guess as everything is, it, everything's a, um, a, a gradual experience and it never just sort of just starts with, a, oh, yes, I know, I'll start a dark sky park. Um, for the last 30 years, I've been working in travel and tourism and I've been taking groups of people all around the world, mostly with my partner, Fred Watson, in the last 12 years where we've been doing science tours. So Fred is an astronomer and... Not an astronomer. Some would say <laughs> he's the, the astronomer, astronomer. large <laughs> currently. Yes, he's well known and he has a high profile and he has a really good following of really interesting people. So together we take these groups of people around the world. and We've been to places like the Arctic and um, South Africa and, gosh, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, all sorts of amazing places. But one of the things that I came to realise in going to all these wonderful corners of the world was just how special Australia is. And so that was one part and how pristine Australia is really still. Yeah. So there's that bit. And then the second bit was that Fred, for the last 30 years, has been involved with the Dark Sky Guidelines up at Siding Spring Observatory. So what these are is a set of um, rules and regulations and requirements for the people to who live within a 200-kilometre radius of Siding Spring Observatory to keep their lights pointing downwards and uh, of a good colour temperature so that they don't disrupt the, the science that's taking place up at Siding Spring Observatory. So these guidelines have been in place for quite some time and um, people were living by the rules, but they didn't really understand why. You know, you forget that that corporate knowledge yeah. sort of disappears. So Fred, for about five years, was coming back from meetings up at Siding Spring saying, oh, we really must do something about this dark <laughs> sky park. And 
I went for a bushwalk, actually. I'm very lucky living on the northern beaches where yeah. we still actually have very good night skies. We do, and yeah. <laughs> we, we, we really, really do. do. yeah. We do. And uh, I came back, even though it was a morning walk, I just thought this is, we've got beautiful blue, you know, wide open skies here and we should be talking about this more. So I came back from this bushwalk and said to Fred, I'm going to get this dark sky park through. I'll help you. I'll do all the. I'll do the legwork. Obviously, you're the, the spokesperson, and you know you have the knowledge. But I'll do the legwork, and so that's how I got involved. It was this combination of seeing how special Australia is, also from a third point, I guess, and something that sort of come f- from it more is my passion to bring people to tourism and the night sky together, yeah. and seeing that there's a real opportunity there that. People are looking for an experience they don't get anywhere else when they go on holidays. And with so much of the world's population living in light-polluted cities now, the night sky is actually something that we can really utilise to bring people to nature and to benefit tourism opportunities. And it's it's one of these things that you just take for granted. I mean, um, a few weeks ago... Um, you you hosted this really cool event um, with Fred Watson and and other astronomers or experts mm-hmm. um, in in that field, and it was really interesting to see and and to hear everyone w- who was there. Like some of them, you know, had a very very big interest mm. in astronomy or the night skies, but there were lots of people who joined in mm. who were just curious about it, and it was a really nice event and a nice opportunity for people to realize how much they are affected by yes. light pollution and how. How much is at stake mm. um, by by losing the night skies because of of that, and how easy it is to fix? Yes. And uh, so, well, when, literally, light pollution is solved with a flick of a switch. It's it as is simple as that. It is really it's it's <laughs> yeah. probably the easiest uh, uh, pollution of, of mm. them all to to solve. Mm-hmm. So, when you had that event, um, you know, we we talked about it up front, and I took a microphone and just walked around and wanted to hear from the people mm. what they expected and. Uh, how they liked it. Mm-hmm. Boom, cut into the into the audio material that we have. So really, it was a really, really good and great event and uh, it worked out, I think, exactly the way that you that you hoped it would. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I, I think tapping into what you said, there's this, I, I have been asked this question before, why, what is it about the night sky? Why is it that people want to see it? And yeah. And it's not just the fact that we're losing losing it by having this this cloud of light pollution over our horizon, but it's I think it's something really primeval that it's it's an ex- well let's put it this way up until about two hundred years ago that was our nighttime entertainment yeah. we looked at the sky we knew exactly where the planets were going to be they were going to wander across the sky and we knew that you know mars walked quicker than than saturn etc and we knew instinctively what the phase of the moon was and where it was going to rise and when it was going to set and yet we don't know that anymore i think if you stopped anyone on the street these days and said do you know what the phase of the moon is they'd just look at you like you were stupid <laughs> But, let, let me get my app out. I, I, just, <laughs> yeah. I just Google it. I just check it. Exactly. But so that beautiful nighttime display was something that we passed stories down. We knew about what crops we were going to grow. We knew what the weather was going to be like the next day. Also, that, that, that night sky gave us a lot of information, no. but it also made us question where we came from. But that 
extra- that extraordinary night sky with all those stars used to be ordinary. Yeah. And now we've made it an extraordinary experience because we don't see it very often. Yeah, we lost yeah. that. We, mm. lo- we lost that feeling. We lost that. We just took it for granted, mm. I think. And, mm. and it's funny because it's, it's like with every pollution. And, um, you know, people see, for example, the, the plastic in the oceans. Mm-hmm. And they see the, the plastic pollution and then there's a grassroots movement that starts out and people exactly. are mm. getting more aware of it. And some say, yeah, why didn't they do it way earlier than this? But, you know, sometimes you have to be affected by it to, mm. to really come around and, and decide we're going to do something about it. And as we said earlier, as you said earlier, it's light pollution is something that people are just getting aware of more and more now, mm. the, the broader Mm. amount of, of, of our population and they mm. want to do something about it. And as you said, it's the great thing is there are ways to, to change that and, and, uh, and it's quite easy. Well, we have a couple of things in our um, benefit in Australia. First of all, we still have relatively dark skies. We have very few large cities. If you look at a, a map of Australia at, at yeah. night from space, there's, there's a few big blobs around Melbourne and Sydney and slightly smaller around Brisbane. But... If you look at the majority of the the continent, it's actually not light polluted. So perhaps that also explains why we're a bit slow to take off with this movement in Australia. (laughs) Whereas somewhere like the Netherlands, where you basically never get a backyard full of a a dark backyard because every street is lit up like a Christmas tree. Or Germany, where I'm from, our night sky, we lost it ages ago, really. And I only realized that when I went all the way up north to Scandinavia because mm. you really have to move and, and, and really go long distance to, to get, to get it. it back, get mm. out of it, yeah. Mm. So, so we're lucky in Australia that we're not yet light polluted but we're also at a time where technology is really chasing, um, is, is, is caught up with this movement basically. So we now have technology, LED lighting, that can project only downwards. And that's one of the issues that a lot of the old street lights just had full, you know, full open light. So the light would go up into the heavens and spill upwards. Uh, but we now have fully shielded lights and that can project downwards. In fact, we can project it so cleverly that we can, you know, absolutely pinpoint where we want every ray of light to go. We've got technologies that we can, um, you know, someone walks down the street and the light turns on and, and, and it goes off again. And it, and it actually can predict that you're, the speed that you're traveling so that if you're tra- traveling in a car, it turns on at a certain speed. So there's no waste at all with light. And obviously the benefit is the carbon footprint as well. So we're using much less energy to light the sky and we're actually using, um, yeah, we're lighting what we really need to. So we're at a fortunate time. But people are slow to change and we've got councils who are yeah. doing the best things that they've, they've known how to do for the last 30 years. And they've got um, contracts, etc., that are in place. And the best will sometimes is completely overridden by just the fact that it's the return on investment yeah. or, you know, all those financial reasons as well Mm. but the good thing is um and we're going to find out about that um throughout this whole podcast series Mm. that there that there are people very smart people um who have been working on solutions Mm. um how to adjust led lights and because that's for example something if if people hear led lighting Mm. 
they they don't feel good about that because you know they've been hit with probably the worst kind of light out of these new yes. light bulbs and mm. you know and they they can't really pinpoint it down or the, the the let's say the technical side behind it why that is but there's just something about it where mm. they go like i don't like this kind of light mm -hmm. but we don't really have the knowledge or most of us don't have the interest or the knowledge or it's not widespread why that is but mm. there are people and we're going to hear from those people that can that are working on solutions to Absolutely. fix that so that's really great you you to go back a little bit you worked at the sydney observatory mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. quite some time what do you think is the role of observatories or what kind of role do they play because um you know, the irony mm -hmm. is that the sydney observatory <laughs> suffered from light pollution quite early because because of its geographical location Absolutely. quite quite mm -hmm. close to the city um but still it has a very you know it's a very important tool i guess mm. to to raise awareness like mm -hmm. just walk us through like how how was the time working for the observatory and and how do you see um uh, observatories you know what, what role do they take mm. it's a really good point and it was a question that i often got asked at the observatory well, why do you still have an observatory why do you bother doing anything yeah. here when you can only see 127 stars <laughs> But you can see 127 stars and you can see some planets. And I think from from the real basic stuff is that, that that contact with the night sky, particularly with planets, just inspires little kids like you can't believe. Like the questions that children come out with about the sun and how the, the motion of planets through the... I mean, questions that I can't get my head around now, but they're asking them, and more often than not, they're asking them because they know the answer. So there's a really um, sexy thing about astronomy yeah. that engages people. So whilst we might not actually see the, the full array of stars in, in the sky... Even just that little bit still captures yeah. people's imaginations. And I think that all scientific um, institutions really have to play the part of um, engaging the public in what they're doing. So from a, a public observatory like Sydney Observatory, that's very easy to do because we have such a good product. We can we can talk about the stars and, and the universe and where yeah. we come from and the, 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 the stars, the stuff that makes stars is what makes you. Yeah. And it's um, very accessible as well. Mm. Like you don't have to buy yourself a telescope or anything no. like that, which would be a big commitment to, mm. you know, a field like astronomy where you don't know, you know, whether you're a kid or as a kid. You, if they're going to last in. You probably yeah. don't come up with that idea. Hey, mom, can I have a telescope? But it's uh, something like an observatory mm. is a very good starting it's point. Good and it's very spot. easy and mm. accessible. Yeah. Mm. But the, I think there is also generally a gap between the general public and science and it is has actually always been part of my mission and that was why I started the science tourism was that I thought that bringing people to science through something where they're having a good time yeah. like tourism opens their heart and therefore opens their mind but you still need a good science communicator to actually tell you or explain to you what you need to know yeah. um, and I think that's where again where observatories really excel at that all around the world I've been to some great ones. Yeah. And and how was it for you as as a young child? When when did you fall in love with the night sky? When when did that spark? Hmm. Um, 
I guess it's always been there. I've been a traveller all my life and my family were quite keen campers. So we would go out and set a swag up somewhere in the middle of nowhere and watch the stars go by and literally, you know, it was that romantic notion of lying in the swag and looking up and watching the satellites pass over your head. To be honest, I've never really had an interest in the technical side of it. I don't want to really know how stars were formed or what a (laughs) galaxy will look like when it collides into another one because I just like the romance of it. Yeah. I like Fair enough. Yeah. Mm. Fair enough. Sometimes it's just mm. about the emotional side of mm. it. And that's maybe what some people would argue is lacking, you know, um, or the ability to bring that across. That's what some scientists maybe yes. lack because mm. they're so into the why, how mm. and all of that, you know, that, that maybe it really needs or I, I'm pretty sure it needs people like you who bring across that emotional side of it. And I mean, that's, that's probably, that's the mission that you have with darkskytraveler.com.au yes. um, with the whole, the whole idea behind it. And what, what were the first tours that you organized to, yeah, to really get people question. on your side, <laughs> to really make, make them aware of how beautiful this is? Well, Huh, yeah, interesting. The first two tours that we did were really quite different. And actually, I'll go back a step. The way the tour company started was, um, and on the back on the, your last question, my father was always very keen on Australia. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. And he and my mother went to Libya to see a total solar eclipse. And I at the time was doing tours to Nepal and taking people up and we would do some work in an orphanage there and then come back and trek and all the rest of it. Anyway, but that was never very lucrative. And I was about to throw it all in when my parents came back from this trip in Libya and said, we've just spent 12 days traveling through Libya and camped in the desert with four and a half thousand people to see a two and a half minute phenomenon. (laughs) That's some serious commitment right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, wow. And so, but the payoff must have been worth it. And it is. Yeah. It is. And so they came back and said, well, you know, rather than throwing in this whole travel thing altogether, why don't you start astrotourism? And why don't you write to Fred Watson and see if he <laughs> might lead the tour? <laughs> yeah. So we, six years in advance, I planned a total solar eclipse tour in Cairns, um, bought some land off the landowner that had a, um, so an eclipse is really very interesting. It, you can really only generally see it in a very narrow band. So if you're yeah. outside that band, you won't see it. And uh, I bought spe- specifically the best plot that I could possibly find on this line <laughs> and um, yeah six years we planned that tour but when I wrote to Fred and said to him would you like to do this eclipse tour he said yes that sounds great but I've never been on a tour before oh wow and uh, I said to him well I've actually got a tour going to South America and we could rebadge it as a uh, an astronomy tour for archaeo astronomy so archaeo astronomy looks at the history of astronomy through medieval etc all all the history of of mankind really and so there we were in Machu Picchu looking at the ruins and thinking (laughs) well this is from looking at this they you know they they knew what what crops to plant etc so they were the first real astronomy tours uh, that we did and then really the one that's 
consistently been the one that people the only one that I've actually ever really run twice because I try to do one-off programs is um, a trip up to the Aurora to see the Aurora Borealis. Yeah. And these are all connections that we have. You know, different people saw different things in the night sky and the Aurora for the Sami people was yeah. quite special. I've, yeah. I think everyone who, who witnessed that phenomena mm. um, comes back as a changed person because that, that yeah. must have that must leave something with you for the rest of your mm. life. Um, but what, what I like about what you do is um, going back to that event in Sydney on the Northern Beaches, um, mm -hmm. near, near, uh, in Palm Beach, where we spent some time there, That's, that was super accessible. Mm. For me to say, I want to go to South America or you yes. know, up to Cairns, that's mm. or even further, that's, that's a huge commitment mm -hmm. and it's totally worth it. But I, What I liked about that event was that it that it was that accessible and it was that easy and it's the first spark mm. that you can light on people and that it was actually something, you know, you 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 showed a, a map of how far the light pollution goes mm -hmm. and it's and it basically it's just on the cusp mm -hmm. of that just of that brushes I mean, the... it just brushes <laughs> that yeah. that park that we were in the the uh, was a governor Phillips Park mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And and um, you know and and it just started there where you said we have to protect this mm. this place because the, you know if we keep if, if we can contain the the, the mm -hmm. pollution or maybe even reduce it you know the, you don't have to travel that far to to get back no. a night sky environment and that was something that I think lots of people who who attended that event mm. were really fascinated by that you know it's something that mm -hmm. that is still very accessible and i like mm. that because i think from that some people might think about going yes. on a bigger tour with you yeah. so so that was what i really enjoyed about that event what we should say is what that event was for yeah and uh so let's let's see where does it start in fact i had taken a group of people to oman And we were camping in the night desert and we were looking at the night sky and thinking how wonderful it was. By the way, isn't it great that you enjoy camping? <laughs> Otherwise, this wouldn't work. Imagine you would have put a kid that dad, mom, dad, I hate camping. <laughs> Whole right, career gone <laughs> right there because it involves a lot of commitment to camp oh, and desert actually, and outside. And my, my tours don't <laughs> generally involve camping, believe it or not. But uh, we got back into Muscat. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Got back into Muscat and I did a talk for the group where I was talking about some of my passion for the night yeah. sky and preserving it and the International Dark Sky Association and what they're doing about educating people on the various different light pollution, different effects of light pollution. Yeah. And one of the ladies from the, the tour came up to me afterwards and she said, I think that we should get this into the Northern Beaches Council's ear. And she set up a meeting and said... And so, and which I followed through with. And at that meeting, Councillor Kylie Ferguson said to me, this is great. I'm really, yeah. in, I'm really involved with this. Yeah. And I think the council will be too. So long story short, six months later, the, a motion's been put to council to actually create um, Australia's first urban night sky park. And what that is, is... Uh, an area of land within a 50-kilometre radius of a major city from which you can still see the stars, yeah. which provides an opportunity, an accessible opportunity, to get public to understand what how easy it is to reduce light pollution and but more than anything else just to experience being in a night sky environment yeah. again. Yeah. And that motion was passed. 
And so Northern Beaches Council are actively pursuing this this um, designation from the International Dark Sky Association. The event that we held was called Picnic in the Dark uh, and we had 250 people come along, sit in the dark. It was freezing cold. It was probably one of the coldest <laughs> nights in Sydney for a long time. I was so glad that I brought my <laughs> thick jackets over from Germany, to be honest, because yeah. I could, could get them out of the cupboard because it was, it was freezing. I and it had come yeah. from nowhere yeah, the day before. It was really warm. But, but clear sky. That absolutely. Was good. We so. had clear skies. And as you say, people, I think there were a lot of people that walked away that night and thought, Sort of things I'd never considered before, basically. Yeah. So, and yeah. I think that's one of the traits um, of you, that if you set your mind onto something and really pushing through with it, mm. um, that is also why you got a little bit impatient <laughs> with, with starting a, a Dark Sky Alliance. Yes. I think you were reaching out to the American one, wasn't that? Wasn't oh, I think you were reaching out to, to the American one, isn't that correct? Yeah. And then at some point you were like, this is taking too long. We're just going to do this on our own. <laughs> Boom. And you started the, or you helped start the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that, how that came about. So, yeah, I guess I am. I am impatient. <laughs> <laughs> what? Persistent, maybe. You have persistent, well, focused, determined. Determined, yeah, that's, that's maybe it, yeah. I uh, have been involved since 2015 with the Dark Sky International Dark Sky Alliance, which yeah. is a group of, uh, well, I was going to say astronomers, but that's not true. It started with a few astronomers in, in Tucson 30 years ago, and over the years they've, they've started this grassroots movement, um, and there's 108 parks around the world now, probably another one being designated as we speak because it's yeah. just growing and growing. But one of the frustrations that we have with this is that it still focuses very much in America or even in the Northern Hemisphere. And whilst there's a lot of activity taking place in Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand's actually really rich with, with projects going on there, uh, there was no communication or conversation taking place and directly in Australia. Yeah. And it came to a head in a little way with um, a meeting that I organised last year. I organised a conference called Riding the Light Wave of Technology and it was the first of its kind in Australia. It brought experts from everywhere, uh, in mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, although we did bring a few from America as well. And one of the outcomes from that, that meeting, the three-day meeting, we had people talking about medical influence of light pollution. We had people talking about ecological um, detrimental experiences, plus the solutions that they're coming up with, I should say. Uh, astronomy, uh, we talked about tourism opportunities. Anyway, it was very wide-ranging. But this group of 100 people came away saying, we don't want this conversation to stop. We want it to continue we want to have an advocacy group we want to have we want to know what other people are doing around australia because we didn't know that xyz is doing something in perth and someone else is doing something in cairns and so that was in september and in april no beg your pardon for earth hour so march 30th this yeah. year we actually launched the australasian dark sky alliance <laughs> <laughs> we had talked about creating a Southern Hemisphere International Dark Sky Association. And that's just difficult. There's no hard feeling between us or them. I get and we it. still want to I work it, together. Yeah. But because there was so much happening, we didn't want to lose the, that conversation. We 
we didn't want to stop being present basically yeah, yeah. and you can mm. still cooperate that's not Absolutely. the thing but mm. um i think it's you know the, the bigger the bigger mm. an, an, an association or such an alliance would be the mm. harder it is to to push for ideas and i think it's also a little bit different to what you guys are planning for for australia and, and the whole region that you are now mm. you know taking action mm. uh, in uh, compared to maybe other parts of the world so so It could be, I could understand, uh, I could imagine it could be very difficult or more difficult to also try to steer a massive group that is like global. Yeah. And it's nice to, to have your own. A little bit of, setup. yeah, I think so. And there's just even technical difficulties. As someone was True. explaining to True, me the yeah. other day, we, the lighting that we use in Australia is yeah. much more aligned with European standards. And so to bring in any... Yeah. Lighting from America doesn't it's actually not viable. It's not even yeah. that we don't want to, it just wouldn't work here. Yeah. That's true. That's Everyone who ever bought a lamp exactly. <laughs> or any device in America and brought it back to Australia oh, no. knows what we're Bubble. talking about. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about who you're going to have or who we are going to have on the podcast because there's some really fascinating people mm -hmm. that you're going to talk to. Okay. So I think I'll start with Fred Watson. Because I know him best. And that's that's uh, <laughs> that's an obvious choice, choice, but a very good one. Yeah. So as I said before, Fred and I helped designate the Dark Sky Park yeah. in the Warren Bungles, the first in Australia. But Fred really taps into some of the information about what information we get from stars themselves. What yeah. have scientists learnt? What is the history of light with astronomy? Uh, and also some of the research. Um, projects that they did up at Siding Spring Observatory during his career up there. So, and Fred really, I think, is probably considered the expert on lighting rules and Abs regulations in Australia. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So he would be our first guest. Yeah. Um, uh, the second person I would s suggest we talk about is Dr. Stephen Mason, and he's an ophthalmologist. Which, you know, when when you told me about that, I was like, okay, so what, what, what is he going to talk about? But he's a very brilliant mind. And he, a brilliant mind. A brilliant mind yeah. and had a great idea. So he did something very specific that, that tries to fix the whole problem, doesn't he? Yeah. So one of the things that we've come to understand in, in about 25, 30 years of research around light is just how much it affects our circadian rhythm and how detrimental that is actually to the eye, obviously, from an ophthalmologist's perspective. What he came to realise was that if you put students, for example, in a very brightly lit room and or use things like iPads, etc., etc., you're actually doing damage to the eye. And so what he's come to uh, create is a tunable LED so that you can actually fix the, the color of the light that is impacting the back of your retina uh, so that you can actually um, minimize the, the The, the damage that is being done to your eye. He's going to tell you that much better than I am. <laughs> I, I thought you were doing a quite good job. I must say that. It was a good teaser. Um, no, it's, it's fascinating. And, mm. uh, and I can't wait to hear how that works and, and how, how mm. he came up with that idea. Yeah. Who else? Uh, we have uh, now, I, going back to the International Dark Sky Association, Kelly Pendoli is a researcher in Western Australia. And she's also the vice president of the International Dark Sky Association. Uh, 
So I'd like to, um, well, with her, we'll tap into what the International Dark Sky Association's up to right now. But more importantly, um, the work that she does is with loggerhead turtles. And I don't know if you know, but the I don't. turtle... <laughs> The turtle is really the poster, has been the poster child for light pollution for a very long time. Why is that? Because we know that turtles, when they, so I'm a little turtle, I'm, I'm, I'm hatched into the sand. The, the, the temperature of the sand actually determines whether I'm male or female. So if, when I'm born. Okay. And then I, I crawl out of the nest that my mother's laid and I crawl towards the nearest light source. Now, normally, that would be the water oh. with the moon or the starlight on it. Obviously, yeah. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is as we've built cities and towns and uh, coastal resorts around uh, these these beaches where these turtles lay, the turtles get confused and they have no idea whether they're going into water, into the nearest town or onto the road. No sense of orientation then. Well, the orientation is just towards the light. Oh, they, yeah. Or like, let's say like they're yeah. totally confused they're by totally it. They're totally confused. So if you look at a map of turtles going from their nest, they go round and around and around. And a lot of them die before mm. they get there. The problem is, is even if they do make it to the water, they still don't have a clear understanding of the major source of light. So they still, then they actually swim around and around and around. So Kelly and um, the Department of Energy and Environment are, have actually just about finished a set of guidelines, federal guidelines, that will actually implement what lighting needs to be used in marine environments all around the coast. So this is a real, this is a, this is the first real federal project project that's actually taken place. That's quite exciting. Oh, so Kelly be, will talk about that. That'll be mm. very fascinating to hear, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then uh, we go back to astronomy. And this time we talk with Dr. David Malin, who is an astrophotographer. And probably not just an astrophotographer. He was coined the man who coloured the stars. Which is a really cool title. Mm. And I hope he put that on his business card because that is really cool. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? Not bad. Yeah, yeah, I coloured the stars. Yeah, yeah. And so what does that mean? He was the man that discovered the tech. Well, did discover it. He implemented it in the first, he was the first person to implement the three colour technique. So when he took photos of the, the, of the universe, he had a red image, a blue image and a green image. Is that right? RGB? RGB, yep. yeah. And overlaid them. And then with that information, he could make a full color um, portrait picture of the, of, the, of the universe. And from that, they could then actually start looking at it and saying, okay, well, there's a lot of hydrogen in the area because they know that hydrogen shows up red. So David has a really interesting history working at the um, Siding Spring Observatory, sitting in the cages, taking these photos in the cold nights. Uh, and, a, and a love of photography, which really started back in France. So there's some interesting tales there. And there's a really funky photo of him on the internet <laughs> sitting in, in his camera, cave, in, yeah. The, yeah, in, his, yeah. in his camera, literally mm-hmm. sitting yeah. in it. Yeah. yeah. Nice, nice mm-hmm. 70s haircut. <laughs> and jumper. And jumper, that's right, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that, that'll be so much fun to hear what he, what he has to say or has to say about it. Um, it's it's a very fascinating topic, and I can't. Oh, there's one more. There is oh, yeah, one more. Sorry, sorry. Mm. It has to say, but there's one more. Yes. You already have a line for this. Yes, and actually, she's a a, a colleague on the Australia, Australasian Dark Sky Alliance, uh, Dr. Teresa Jones, and 
she talks about the effect of light pollution on the environment, specifically from insects. So she studies insects. Uh, and it all boils down to the fact that for 36 million years we've evolved, our cells have evolved to to have 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of night. And what are we doing when we implement a false false daylight basically into this environment for animals and, and insects so fabulous work she's interesting mm. i can't wait to hear their stories mm. and i'm really excited about this and um is, this was a good way to start the podcast <laughs> but already if anyone has questions suggestions and so forth um, feel free to write an email podcast at darkskytraveler.com.au that's your address and uh, just check out darkskytraveler.com.au in general the website it'll give you lots of information also about upcoming tours and so forth um, yeah I'm really excited about this Marnie Thanks, and uh, I'm so glad that we started this project together and I can't wait to hear from all yeah the upcoming experts yeah. on the podcast. Thanks, Benny. Thanks for your work. 